If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Last week, an investigation into sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising found that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and Cardinal Reinhard Marx, the current archbishop, had mishandled abuse cases during their time as bishop. On this week's show, Jerry and I recap the cases Benedict was implicated in and look at some of the questions it raises. And just as a warning to our listeners, this episode does describe an incident of sexual misconduct. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a sunny but cold Rome, Colleen. How are you doing today? We're doing well. We're waiting for a president to be elected to the country, which is very important. Right. Today in Munich, Germany, a long-awaited 1,000-page report into sexual abuse and cover-up within the Catholic German Church was released. The former head of the Catholic Church, Benedict XVI, has been accused of failing to act against four priests who were alleged to have committed child sexual abuse. The report claims when Benedict was archbishop in Munich, he knowingly allowed abusive priests to continue working for the church without sanctions. Jerry, let's talk about this German abuse report. We dropped uh, an update for our listeners in the podcast feed last week, just outlining some of the basics of what we knew. So just to recap a little bit, this report was commissioned by the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising, and it was carried out by a German law firm that spent two years investigating the history of how abuse was handled in that diocese from a, a time spanning more than 70 years. And that included Pope Emeritus Benedict's five-year tenure as Archbishop of the Diocese in the late 70s and the early 80s, from 1977 to 1982. Just for context, this report was nearly 1,900 pages, and more than 200 of those dealt with Benedict. Now, Benedict gave 82 pages of evidence to the investigators, but Jerry, I want to start with something really basic here, which is that we've heard lately that Benedict's not in great health, right? He he has a difficult time talking. Are we really supposed to believe that he wrote these 82 pages himself? Well, this is, uh, I think, would be to stretch the imagination. He's He will be 95 in April. He has uh, lost the sight in one eye. He can hardly walk. It's difficult to understand him when he speaks. Mm -hmm. I've had this directly from cardinals, from people who have actually been to see him in not so far back. Really, nobody here believes that he sat down and wrote 82 pages. It's clear that what happened, as what has been happening in recent years, is that his secretary, Archbishop Georg Ganschwein, he has tended to organize the Pope's life. And it seems that here, though nobody has stated this publicly, I understand that other people have been brought in 
to help to respond to the questions that were sent from the law firm. They sent questions to Benedict to ask. Now, in a normal investigation, I think one has the option of not responding until one sees all the evidence that is being produced so you don't incriminate yourself, or you could respond if you feel able. Now, Benedict, obviously, he can read. This, everybody says, he's lucid and he can read. Okay. But I understand that this, the responses, the 82 pages, were put together, and they were obviously read to him, or he could read them, uh, and that were then sent back. Now, many people hear that the Vatican was not involved, as I understand it, in this. Benedict is living in a little monastery behind St. Peter's Basilica. Since he retired as Pope, practically all the communications that have come out of the monastery, Mater Ecclesia, where he's living, have often been without any advance informing of the Vatican. So it has operated as a kind of almost an independent unit. And this is what's happened in, in this case. In relation to this report, the German news agency gave information first. The Zeit, the German newspaper, actually started with a comment right from Archbishop Ganschwein. And that is when the Vatican came to know of it. Uh, there is much discussion in the Vatican about the whole way the, the situation was handled. Right. And we'll talk a little bit later about kind of how this was put together. And But let's start off with the accusations that are leveled against Benedict in this report. The report accused Benedict of mishandling four cases or failing to take action against four priests who were accused of abusing minors in the diocese, including two cases in which priests had been criminally prosecuted for abuse but were allowed to continue ministering as priests when Benedict was archbishop. Jerry, how much do we know about these four cases? Well, first of all, the report deals with 65 cases. It has four under Benedict's period as Archbishop of Munich. One of them was where a bishop friend in another country asks Benedict to accept his nephew, who had been condemned in another country for abuse, to accept him to come and study in the Munich Archdiocese. And so he was there, I think, as chaplain to a hospital. So Benedict accepted him. Benedict accepted him. Quite what Benedict was told, we don't know. I don't think the report states this. There was a second case where a priest from one of the German dioceses who had been uh, condemned, who, who was, went out of the country, went worked in another country, and then was reaching retirement age and wanted to come back to retire in Germany. And uh, Benedict gave him permission to come back and retire. Okay, so that wouldn't be a case of continuing ministry. It wouldn't be a case of continuing ministry, I think. Uh, whether he did any active ministry when he came back, it's not clear. Got it. Then there is a, a third case of a priest who liked photographing girls when they were changing. Ugh. And he, he was doing active ministry. When Benedict found out about that, he put him working in an old folks' home as a chaplain to old folks and I think, a hospital. Mm. I don't have all the details. Uh, and then the fourth case was the one which uh, attracted attention way back in 2010. That's the case of Peter Hulemann. He was a priest in another diocese, in Essen diocese. He s appears to have abused uh, a child, and I don't know if it's one or more, uh, on, under the influence of drink. 
the arch the bishop of Essen wanted him to go to therapy to, because at that time we're talking about the 1980. Remember the first case in the United States that came into public knowledge was 1985. Right. And that was in Louisiana, Louisiana, down where you are. So in 1980, the Archdiocese of Munich, Freising, was asked to allow this person, this priest from Essen, to come to Munich for therapy, because apparently there was the best therapist there. Mm -hmm. Benedict was at the meeting where this was discussed. That was in January 1980. The minutes of the meeting show that he was present. He, he, in his responses, said he wasn't present. Anyway, he was given permission to come to Munich for therapy. And then sometime afterwards, he was allowed to do pastoral work. Now, he, he didn't abuse, it seems, he didn't abuse anybody while Benedict was archbishop. But later he did. In fact, he, he's, uh, I think, has abused more than 20 young people, children. Wow. And... Uh, Later, of course, he was uh, suspended, etc. But uh, this is the case that has come to light because when Benedict was Pope in 2010 and the whole abuse question blew up in Germany and there was this question, did he allow this man, this priest, who then abused children later, to practice in the diocese, to carry out ministry? He said he didn't do it. And he, I understand he says that he didn't know about his, his, quite his history of abuse. But not having read the German, I, I, I'm not quite clear. So those were the four cases. I am wondering about a little bit of historical context here. You know, we know that often in the 70s and 80s, before abuse was really in like the public knowledge, that shuffling priests around uh, who were accused of abuse was pretty much the normal practice. And I wonder how Benedict's actions stack up against what was considered normal at the time. First of all, nobody had, not even the Pope at that time, had a full picture, had anything near a clear picture of the dimensions of the abuse. I mean, we're now talking about 500 cases in the Diocese of Munich alone. Right. And despite that early reporting in the mid-80s, you know, it wouldn't really explode into public consciousness until 2002 and then be taken up by church leadership. Yes. But the case of Fullerman is interesting because the, his bishop in Essen in 1980 believed that he could be cured and so there was the belief at that time that you send them for therapy and then the person could go back into ministry. This, of course, now with our knowledge, 40 years later, we are judging that that shouldn't have been done at that time. But that knowledge that we have today was not available 40 years ago. And I, I've talked to so many bishops over these years now. It's very clear that one did not even know in their own country that there was such a degree of abuse in another diocese. So the, everybody was on a learning curve. Now, th there are two perspectives here, I think, that are very important because our listeners may say, well, this was so wrong. Right. Yeah, but you have to look from two perspectives. One is from the perspective of the victim. And the victim had a searing memory that has never been deleted. I've spoken to many victims. They have memories that cannot be erased and that they carried the sufferings to their grave. Now, that's the victim side. From the bishop's side, it was a case of 
first of all, sin. And then they didn't see it much as a crime at that time. Right. And now, now we should say we do. The norms have all been updated. We have a whole different approach now. Right. Pope Francis, you know, has made changes now that require bishops to be mandated reporters. That happened in Vos Estes Lux Mundi in 2019, I believe. And then last year, he changed canon law to require penalties to be taken against abusers. The question now that we're grappling with is, how do you handle past cases that, you know, violated these new norms? You can't apply it retroactively. So what do you do in this case? Well, I, I think here, uh, and I've listened to Pope Francis say many times on the plane in the press conferences, that you cannot apply the hermeneutic, that's the key of interpretation of today, using the standards of today, to an event that happened 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Right. But obviously, that's not a satisfying answer for victims or indeed for many of our listeners, and honestly, myself included. I'm, I find myself really struggling with this. The, the answer is that there has to be justice. Mm -hmm. And Pope Francis said this quite, really the day after the Munich report. He didn't comment on the Munich report, but he said, we're determined to deal with this question of abuse, and there must be justice for the victims. And justice for the victims means the recognition mm -hmm that they were abused by X, Y, or Z, and that, they, that their uh, testimony is believed. Secondly, that there is no cover-up. And thirdly, that they are compensated in different ways for this. I think a failure to deliver justice is, is a very serious weakness still in the church. I think one more thing that makes this difficult is figuring out what justice looks like. Not all victims are going to define that the same way. And at the same time, we don't really have a precedent for, in the case of Benedict, like how you hold a Pope Emeritus to account for these actions because he's the first person to have that that position in the modern era. There's there's so many questions about what you do here. I know that SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, uh, told the New York Times that they think that Benedict should relinquish his his title as Pope Emeritus. They said that would start the act of contrition. So, you know, really from Boston to Munich, we have seen church leaders at the very top uh, over and over again turn a blind eye to sexual abuse, cover up sexual abuse, commit sexual abuse. They're, the only way to consider this is that he failed. He did not value the victims and the safety of, of young people, the safety of people attending church against the reputation. Validation is extremely important to survivors of clergy sex abuse because for years it has gone silent. We need him to relinquish that title of Pope Emeritus and show the world that they do care about us victims and that they do really want to understand the hurt that we've been going through. So obviously this is a, a challenging and ongoing conversation. It's nowhere near over, but we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll discuss together some of the issues with how this report was handled. Stay with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Retired former Pope Benedict XVI has admitted he made a false statement during an investigation into sexual abuse in the German Catholic Church. Today, the former Pope's private secretary admitted to a meeting in 1980. At that meeting, church officials discussed a priest accused of sexual abuse. In a previous statement, Pope Benedict had said that he was not there. He now blames the discrepancy on an editorial mistake. So just to recap what happened here, there was this meeting in 1980 where the transfer of an accused priest into the Munich diocese was discussed, and the minutes of the meeting said that Benedict was there. He heard this conversation. Benedict's contribution to the investigators for this report that just came out said that he wasn't there, and they had to correct that. So Benedict said that he was very sorry for the oversight, and he defended that his original statement wasn't made out of malicious intent, and he said that this was all attributable to an editing error. And now we're expecting him to release a statement once he's gone through the full report, which is expected to maybe shed more light on how that mistake was made. Jerry, when do we think that statement's coming out? Well, Colleen, the Archdiocese of Munich said before the report, on the eve of the publication of the report, that they would study it and respond in one week. So on Thursday, the 27th of uh, January, the Archdiocese of Munich will give an official public response to the report. Now, Benedict, he admits this was a mistake. He attributes it to editing. Obviously, the one who has really managed all his writings and discussions, especially in the latter years, has been Archbishop Ganschwein. And my understanding is that he involved some jurist, canon lawyer, at least one, some other people in the writing of the responses. And that sort of comes out in the responses. Father Zollner, who is the top expert, he's the head of the Center for Dealing with These Questions in the Gregorian University, he, he said that the language was rather Juridical. Yeah, I have I have the quote here. He says it was strange that Benedict, quote, restricted himself only to the juridic, testimonial, and canonical aspects of this. There is a lack of awareness that this was also about a human side and about external perception. And I think one thing that he might be alluding to there is that there were some really strange arguments made in in Benedict's contribution that revealed sort of a lack of sensitivity to maybe to the pain this caused and to how serious it was. For example, at one point, uh, Benedict argues that if a priest abuses someone, it could be argued that he did this in a private capacity and not as a priest, which would absolve the church from responsibility. And at another point, he claims that a priest who was exposing himself to minors was not abusing them because there was no physical contact. And those are seriously questionable arguments coming from from Benedict. Yes, I, I think we... We don't have the full text, but there certainly, and this is what Father Zollner is alluding to, there certainly was a lack of sensitivity, to say the least. Right. So how do you think that this could have been handled better? I think it could have been handled better if they had not sent 82 pages. What should they have sent instead? 
they should have said, Benedict XVI is now almost 95 years old. His health is fragile. He, uh, he can read, but he can't really sit down and write with the freedom that he did in the past. In, in fact, he can write very little, I understand. We trust in the good sense of the investigators to try to bring out the truth. People will understand that at 95, your possibilities are limited, even with the clearest mind in the world. And it seems like the key issue here is that, you know, people would have liked to see Benedict approach this with a sense of, okay, if there were mistakes made, I'm sorry, and approaching it with humility, whereas it sort of seems from these responses like they were trying to make him seem innocent at all costs. Yes, the answers were framed in a way that they were always defensive, trying to say he did not do wrong and he does not have responsibility. I hear what you're saying about, you know, that he should have just kind of approached this with humility and said, you know, I can't remember everything, so I, I trust the investigators. I kind of tend to believe that it is a good thing that he tried to correct the record, that he tried to cooperate as much as possible. I guess one thing that's been criticized is that he didn't prepare this with the rest of the Vatican, who are very much in line with the the current norms and kind of know how to talk about these things, are really well practiced in this. So I kind of feel like he should have contributed a lot of evidence, but maybe the, the Vatican could have helped him put it together rather than just keeping it contained to whoever was helping him with this. There can be many readings of this. Right. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, you know, because I think a lot of people look at this story and the news that's come out and they say, well, this shows that, you know, the mishandling went straight to the top of the church because Benedict was Pope. But in reality, we don't know a lot yet about what this huge report says about Benedict's time in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which he headed for more than 20 years and which was the office in the Vatican that dealt with abuse cases. And we don't know what it says about his time as Pope. So I want to get a little bit of uh, historical context from you about Benedict's own evolution on this, because right now we're talking a lot about his early career, but as Pope, he was known for taking some decisive steps, too. Can you talk to me about that? Well, Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, he was made Cardinal by Paul VI. Cardinal Ratzinger came to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the request of John Paul II, 1982. And he was head of that office for 23 years to 2005 when he became Pope. The cases came in, but were not really seen exactly for the dimensions, the global dimensions of this, what now is seen as a plague in the church, until really the end of the 1990s. And when the cases exploded in the whole scandal exposed in the United States, that really sharpened it up. So right at the end of the 1990s, and certainly the beginning of the 2000s, Cardinal Ratzinger as prefect began to grasp that this was the situation. He brought in Archbishop Shikluna to be his right-hand man in dealing with this. And he became the, the chief prosecutor and was that for 10 years. And during that time, they, they arrived at the Massiel case, the case of the founder of the Legionaries of Christ. In fact, Cardinal Ratzinger had sent Archbishop Shikluna to begin speaking with the victims and he went to New York and was speaking with the first victim when John Paul II died. He came back with his report to Cardinal Ratzinger on the eve of the conclave and gave him the report. Wow. And then Cardinal Ratzinger became Pope 
April 2005. And what actions did he take against abuse as Pope? One of the first actions he took was to act on the Massiel file that Archbishop Shikluna had given him. And he took him out of public ministry mm-hmm. and put a life of prayer and penance. And then during his term as Pope, Benedict removed no less than 400 priests from the ministry. In the past, th- th- that was almost unthinkable. And that's a really different picture than what we see from him, you know, in these these four cases uh, that we talked about in the first half of the show. All right, so Jerry, this is a, a complex story, and we're getting more information by the day. We're expecting more information in that statement that's coming from the Munich Diocese on Thursday, which is the day that this podcast comes out. So our listeners can check out their Inside the Vatican podcast feeds or americamagazine.org for more updates on that statement. And there are a few things that we haven't touched on in this story, including that public prosecutors in Munich are opening investigations into 42 cases of alleged misconduct by leading members of the Catholic Church in Germany. And we didn't talk about that Cardinal Marx was accused of mishandling two cases of abuse. So we're expecting the Thursday statement from the Munich Diocese to address that as well. So for our listeners, uh, stay tuned to Inside the Vatican. We'll try to keep you up to date on everything that we learn about this story. And Jerry, thank you so much for giving us some historical context on this and and helping us understand this really complex report. I appreciate it. Thank you, Colleen. We'll have a lot more to say, I think, and it'll be interesting to see what Benedict himself will say. Before we go, so many of the themes and questions of accountability that we raised in this episode have been explored in depth on America Media's podcast, Deliver Us. So we highly encourage you to listen to that. You can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast now, and it's linked in the show notes. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo De Silva. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Robert Palliser at the Jesuit Curia and Kara Hanlon. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. The best way to support our work on the show is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.